James has note sheets. If anyone is missing a handout, raise your hand and James will find you. And um, we'll begin with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that you've given us. Lord, you've been gracious to us even today as we have um, already been exhorted and encouraged from your word. And we pray, Father, that um, you would continue to do so in this hour. Lord, let your word um, speak through anything that I might say. Lord, we desire to um, know you more. And we ask that you would simply um, reveal to us any sin that may be in our hearts, that we might confess it to you and that we would um, be more closely in fellowship with you as a result of um, what you would like us to learn today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, this week we are beginning a new series in Sunday School, and it is a six-week series. And uh, if you would like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, we'll be spending the six weeks in this one chapter. And as you're turning there, I'll just say a few words about why we're going right into the middle of one of the Gospels, um, in that some time ago when the elders asked if I would take uh, this series this summer for six weeks, I was trying to decide what do I want to teach, um, and it didn't take me too long to realize that not long before that, probably back in the winter at some point, um, I had just in the course of my regular Bible study been reading through the book of Luke. And I came to chapter 12 at that time, and perhaps this has happened to you before, but as I got into the chapter, I found that I couldn't get out of it. It was, um, for whatever reason, uh, God was pleased to reveal lots of things um, about myself that I was seeing on, in these words of Scripture. Um, just verse after verse, it's a long chapter, and it's just Jesus speaking the whole way through. It's a long discourse, um, and I found that there were so many things that were personally applicable to me, and um, perhaps it might be the same for um, all of us. So uh, just very briefly, um, I want to first give some context of where this chapter exists, but before that, I'll give a brief kind of roadmap of what the six weeks are going to be. Um, this week, and it's interesting, if you were in the early service, in some ways Dan preached the lesson for me because today we're looking at the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And that had much to do with what Dan um, preached about this morning. Um, so that's this week. Uh, next week we will look at the fear of man, the fear of God, as well as being unashamed of Christ. Week three, you're going to want to be here for this. We'll talk about greed and covetousness. Week four, we'll talk about God's provision and our stewardship of it. Week five, we'll talk about being ready for Christ's return. And then the final week, we will look at the fact that Christ brings division and that that necessarily calls us to make a choice to either follow him, no matter what the cost, or else to face judgment. So that'll be a fun week as well. Um, so that's where we're going. And... As far as Luke chapter 12, let's just say a few things relative to um, where we are in the midst of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, best as I can tell, based on what I've been able to read, um, this chapter exists somewhere in the middle of his third year of public ministry. Uh, we don't 
perhaps know a date exactly, but we're probably maybe about six months away from the Passion. So that lets us know where we are in Jesus' life um, when we come to this chapter. Um, at this time in his life, he is experiencing quite a bit of popularity still among the crowds, lots of people following him, wanting to hear what he has to say. But at the same time, he's also experiencing quite a bit of um, opposition from the religious leaders of the day. And we'll see that clearly today. Now, just a few things, uh, landmark uh, things in Jesus' life that have already taken place by the time we get to this chapter. Um, just several things for us to think about. Um, he's already fed the 5,000. He's already walked on water. Um, he's already been transfigured. He's already given his teaching on Jesus himself being the bread of life, as well as the light of the world. Um, and not too long before this, when we pick up the story in chapter 12, um, Jesus had had a meal, that very familiar um, encounter, when Jesus had a meal with Mary and Martha. Um, that happens in Luke chapter 10. And our immediate context finds us with Jesus having another meal, although this one perhaps not quite as enjoyable, and that in chapter 11, Jesus is invited to lunch by a Pharisee. And so we're actually going to start there, because I think the last part of chapter 11 helps us to really understand what Jesus begins to say in chapter 12. So let me just, if I could, if you'll indulge me, I'll read the last part of chapter 11, starting in verse 37. We'll read through the end of that chapter, and then I'll read the first few verses of chapter 12, which is where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. So this is Luke eleven thirty-seven. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of your prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. 
You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now chapter 12, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed among the housetops, upon the housetops. So that must have been quite a lunch indeed that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, I should just say that when we see the word lawyers there in the text, it's not perhaps lawyers the way we think of them today, not practicing in a civil or criminal court. These are experts in God's law, Old Testament law. Those are the scribes that we read about in chapter 11. Um, and we'll look at some of these verses in more detail in a moment, but I think you get the gist of it, that um, at this lunchtime encounter, Jesus doesn't hold back with these men. And he tells them exactly um, what he sees in their lives um, that is hypocritical, um, pronouncing woe upon them. And you may wonder if they ever invited him to lunch again. Um, and then right on the heels of that, Jesus finds himself, as we see in chapter 12, um, in the midst, as he often did, in a very large crowd. This time, perhaps even larger than normal, and that there were so many thousands of people, literally, that wanted to listen to what Jesus said, they were actually stepping on one another. And so what's the first thing that Jesus says when he has this audience in front of him? He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I think this is a loaded phrase, if ever there was one. Um, we should all probably already well enough understand that the Pharisees were hypocrites. That doesn't surprise any of us. Um, it doesn't take long to read the gospel accounts and see that they were hypocritical. Um, the religious leaders of first century Judaism were morally corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. Um, we know that. Um, but I think it's still interesting to, to ask the question, and I like to ask questions of the text, um, why did Jesus begin this discourse in this way? Why did he first warn this group about the Pharisees' hypocrisy? And I think we maybe have a two-part answer to why he begins this way. And the first part may be found, and this is an easy detail that we might skip over. Um, and Verse 1, he says that he began saying to his disciples, first of all. So there's a large crowd of people, thousands of people, we don't know how many, and yet he begins to speak specifically to his disciples. Now I think that this is a detail that Luke includes for a reason. I don't think it's accidental. But there's something that we should see here, that whatever it is that Jesus begins to say, he wants those that are closest to him. He wants his disciples to hear this. Because um, likely there were plenty of people in the crowd that weren't really followers of Christ. They may have been intrigued for some reason, curious about what this man had to say. But there was certainly a perhaps fairly small number that were truly his disciples. And so it's as if Jesus leans into that smaller group 
And this is what he says. And if you kind of put yourself in their position, I think if we're going to understand as best we can what Jesus is saying, it helps to put ourselves in that audience, try to imagine that we're a first century Jew, one of Christ's disciples. And when Jesus says to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, I think that a lot of bells are going off in their head. And they may be in yours as well, because the term leaven is... um, a term that Jesus used at other times in his teaching. It's used in other places in the New Testament. Paul used it. Um, and leaven is basically, it's a very rich symbol in the New Testament. Um, and there's lots of symbolism behind it. And I think that his audience, the disciples that were listening to him, were probably very quickly picking up on that. Um, and now when you think of the word leaven, and you would go all the way back to the first place that we encounter leaven in Scripture, what do you think of? Passover, right. Um, And I think that it's important for us to understand um, some of the context behind it uh, to see what Jesus is trying to say. So we're going to take a quick detour back to Exodus, to the Passover, um, and see what we can learn there. Then we'll come back to Luke. So turn back to Exodus chapter 12. And I'll just read a few verses here. Exodus chapter 12, Um, I will read verse 7 and 8 first of all, and this is the Lord God talking to Moses, giving them instructions, um, talking about the Paschal Lamb. In verse 7 he says, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So on the night that Israel is going to be delivered from their bondage in Egypt, um, uh, God had already told Moses that he was going to come through and the way that he was going to deliver them. This is the last plague, the death of the firstborn. He's going to kill the firstborn, both people and animals, throughout the land of Egypt unless we have here the people of Israel would have sacrificed a lamb put the blood on the doorpost, and then, of course, God would have passed over them and spared their firstborn. But they weren't just to put the blood on the doorpost and then just sit around and wait. God gave them some more instructions. He said to actually roast the lamb, eat it, make a meal out of it, and then I would agree that you can't have a good meal without bread. And he says, eat it with unleavened bread. And again, I think it's interesting. Well, what is it about the leaven that's important here? Um, I think we have a clue about what, why the leaven was important. If we skip over to verse 11, and he actually tells them how they're supposed to eat the meal. He says, now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I'm not qualified to stand here and talk about leaven or yeast. I've never baked a loaf of bread in my life. Um, But I know that a lot of you in the room have, and we know what leaven, we know what yeast is. It is that stuff that makes bread rise, right? Makes dough to rise. Now, basically, the first thing that I think is important about the unleavened bread is that Israel 
didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise that night. God said, you better be ready to go. They didn't know exactly when, but on that day, they were going to be finally delivered from Egypt, and their deliverance was imminent. They couldn't sit around and wait for bread to rise. So that's one thing of why the unleavened bread was important. I think there's something else that we'll see in verse 14 and 15 about the leaven. Because not only did they eat a meal that night when they were delivered from bondage, God also established an annual reminder of this event. He established the feast of the unleavened bread for Israel to celebrate year after year to remind them of how God delivered them out of Egypt. So verse 14, God says, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whatever eats, I'm sorry, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So as a part of this week-long feast, they first of all have to get rid of all the leaven in their houses. Now, when you get down to it, yeast is actually a single-celled organism. Some of you understand this better than I do. It is an extremely small thing. Now, you can go today and buy it at Walmart, these little grains of stuff. Right? It was the grains of stuff that God was telling them to get out of their house entirely for that whole week. And in addition to that, this is amazing to me. I, I don't think I'd ever really seen this, that if someone during that feast were to eat leavened bread, perhaps whether knowingly or unknowingly, Verse 15 says the consequence was very severe. They were cut off from the whole nation. Something so seemingly small and insignificant as leaven carried with it a very severe consequence. Now I think that's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 12. The leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy, it may seem so small, so insignificant, but it carries with it grave consequences. You consider what it was like as, as an Israelite to be cut off from your nation, out of fellowship, out of the family. Um, it's a grave consequence for such a seemingly small thing. Let's go back to Luke. And with that in mind, I think it will be helpful to apply the rest of what Jesus says. When Jesus uses the word leaven in his teaching, really it usually refers to influence, normally a sinful influence. And that makes sense here because he's calling it hypocrisy. Um, so in front of thousands of people, Jesus leans in to his disciples, and basically what he's telling them is you better watch out for the influence of these Pharisees. If you associate yourselves with these men, you associate yourselves with their teaching, you better be careful because they are going to influence you. So that's the warning that Jesus gives. Just as if a small bit of leaven causes an entire lump of dough to rise, a small bit of hypocrisy spreads and influences other people. 
So I think we should quickly just try to apply this to ourselves. We'll look at some more application here in a little bit. But as far as we're concerned, I think that it works the same way for us. That a small bit of hypocrisy in our life can very quickly spread to influence those around us. So if we're going to apply Jesus' warning to us, we might do something like this. And just say that those of us in the room that are men, we should consider the way that our hypocrisy is going to influence our wives. The ladies in the room might consider the way that your hypocrisy is going to influence your children. I don't see many small children in the room. Children should consider the way that their, in, their hypocrisy would influence their brothers and sisters. And finally, a catch-all for all of us, whether you're a man or woman, young or old. We should consider the way that our hypocrisy will influence our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? All of us here together, the influence will spread. So that's the warning. That's what Jesus is warning against. So now we'll come to trying to give a good definition for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy defined. We're going to work our way and try to progress to a place by the end of the hour, where we can see how hypocrisy can be defeated. But let's first try to define it. I like to define things because it makes sure that we're talking about the same thing. Um, and I have about 400 years worth of definitions here for you. Um, I like definitions by dead guys the best, They're often the best ones. Um, so I'll work my way backwards in time. Um, one definition, this is from a 21st century pastor and commentator, Philip Graham Ryken. Um, he says that hypocrisy is the reality gap between our outward appearance of godliness and the sinner that lives inside. Okay, The outward appearance of godliness and the sinner that lives inside. Go back in time to the 20th century commentator and theologian Leon Morris. This is a very common definition. He says that hypocrisy is the practice of saying one thing and doing another very common definition, and it's true. And we'll go back to Spurgeon, in his inimitable way, says that hypocrisy is to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other, which is to make much of little, right? Now we'll go back farther, back to the Puritans. Richard Baxter would say that hypocrisy is the acting the part of a religious person as upon a stage by the one that is not religious indeed, seeming to be in religion, to be what you are not, but to do what you do not. Did you get that? Now we'll go to Richard Sibbs, who says, a hypocrite is someone that may perform external works, but cannot dissemble inward affections. So you see a theme here, and we already know this. The thing about hypocrisy is there's a difference between what we do on the outside and what happens on the inside in our heart. And then finally, Thomas Watson. If you're ever looking for a quotable quote, go to Thomas Watson. He says, a hypocrite is a man who carries Christ in his Bible, but not in his heart. And then, of course, we need to define things with Scripture and perhaps a workable definition of hypocrisy. There's probably quite a few in Scripture. Titus 1.16, Paul says that Hypocrisy is professing to know God, but by your deeds, denying him. 
So there's that disconnect between what you know or do or believe in your heart versus what you do outwardly. So hopefully those definitions can be helpful. That's hypocrisy defined. Let's now look at hypocrisy displayed. And we're first going to look at how the Pharisees displayed their hypocrisy. Look at a few of these verses I read earlier from chapter 11. Because I think that this is all in context of what Jesus was saying. If we look back at 11.39, where he said, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. So this is a way of saying that their outward appearance was one of holiness, but inside they were full of wickedness. Verse 42, Jesus says, You pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are things you should have done without neglecting the others. So they would be obedient, seemingly, to the very smallest, minutest detail in the law or in the tradition that they had created, tithing on garden herbs, which Jesus says they should do that. That's, that's fine but they would neglect love and justice, fundamental things that should undergird all of our other obedience. They would neglect that. Verse 44, For you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. That's interesting imagery. That What would it be like to be walking somewhere outside and not knowing that there was a graveyard beneath where you're walking? It looks like it's nice green grass and very pleasant place to walk. All the while, there's decaying flesh and bones beneath you. Probably not a place you'd really want to walk if you knew what was beneath you, right? And that's how Jesus describes these Pharisees. They look good on the outside, but inside there's really death. And then verse 46 Woe to you, lawyers, you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So this is the classic case of not practicing what they're preaching. Right? And then finally, and this one's I think particularly damning for them, verse 52, he says, Woe to you, lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge that you didn't enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And this, I think, was a lot of what Dan was saying in his sermon, was that of all people, the Pharisees and the scribes should have been the ones that were making it easy for people to understand God's word, help them apply it and learn how to obey it. But in fact, they were doing the opposite. They were making it harder to obey because first century Judaism, they had turned it into this impenetrable thicket of rules and regulations and arcane requirements that no one could ever obey, no one could ever comply with. To that end, there's a quote that I'll read from Leon Morris that I think is um, helpful to understand um, if you lived in that day what it was like. Um, perhaps we can see something of the situation by considering an example. On the Sabbath they taught a man might, may not carry a burden in his right hand or on his left, in his bosom or on his shoulder, but he may carry it on the back of his hand, 
or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet, carried mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or his sandal. Now multiply that by all the regulations of the law, and ordinary people have a burden beyond bearing even to know what they might do or might not do. There is also a multitude of loopholes. That's a lawyer's favorite thing, right, is a loophole. Who knew their traditions, which enabled them to pretty well do what they wished. So they made it extremely difficult for the people to keep the law, and they would find ways out of it themselves. So that's the way that the Pharisees were displaying hypocrisy. Um, the next question we should ask is, how do we display hypocrisy? Um, I hope that I'm not the only one in the room that has done that thing before. Hopefully we can identify with this. Um, but one thing I could say is that we can display hypocrisy in the same way as the Pharisees. In many of the same ways. We can do the exact same things. Um, it may not look exactly like it did for them, but um, as we see, it's all about um, the attitudes in our heart. So in order to understand or to think about some ways that we might display it ourselves, here are some questions to think about. No one might want to answer these out loud. Just think about it in your head. Um, and don't think that I'm not asking the questions of myself. I think I've come up with these because I can identify with every one of them in one way or the other. Um, do you look at others and think you're better than they are? Do you often wonder what other people are thinking about you? Do you strive to gain the approval of others? Do you congratulate yourself on your intelligence or your good behavior? Do you ignore or minimize sin when you do perceive it in your own life? Now aside from today, which is of course Sunday, have you practiced Christian disciplines such as prayer and Bible study any other day this week? Have you disciplined your children for sinful and selfish attitudes that you yourself are known to have? Or have you scolded your husband or wife for sinful or selfish attitudes that you yourself are known to have? And this one's interesting. Do you have any truly close friendships? And then this gets down to it. Do you fear being exposed for what you really are? Now, don't think that I'm trying to discourage everyone, but here's the last question. Um, as I've been reading these questions, have you primarily been thinking about somebody else that needs to hear them? Um, I think it's clear that we can display hypocrisy in lots of different ways. Um, lots of different ways. So with that in mind, where does hypocrisy lead? Where does this all go? Well, back in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, will show us that where hypocrisy eventually leads is to discovery. Hypocrisy discovered. I'll read verses 2 and 3 again. Jesus says, There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Jesus clearly says here that hypocrisy will be discovered. 
And I think we would all agree that there's quite a few other scriptures that would also attest to that. And I want us to look at a few of them here as we think about how hypocrisy is discovered. Um, We'll look first at Ecclesiastes. This is on the second page of your notes. The very last verse of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Which says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So this is a truth that tells us that whether things are hidden or not, they're behind closed doors or out in the open, every act, everything that we've done, will be brought to judgment. I'm going to perhaps, no, we'll go to Romans. Romans 12, 16 next, and then we'll do 1 Corinthians. Although Romans 12.16 might be the wrong, I'm sorry, I think it's 2.16. If that's not it, then we'll, I won't try to guess again. No, that's not it either. I apologize. Okay, we will go to 1 Corinthians then. 1 Corinthians 4.5. Which says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring uh, to light both the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So we saw in Ecclesiastes that all of our acts, the things we've done, will come to judgment. Here Paul tells us that not only our actions, but also our motives, our intentions of our heart, actually come and be exposed in the light. So that doesn't really give us anywhere to hide, does it? Um, Ecclesiastes agrees with Paul, which agrees with Jesus, that hypocrisy will be discovered. We don't know when. It may not occur until that final day, or it may occur today, in the next hour. We don't know. Um, Another quote I have from Leon Morris, he says, The art of being a hypocrite depends on the ability to keep some things concealed. When the concealment is no longer possible, the hypocrite is inevitably unmasked. Now some of us know this to be true from experience. I can say for myself, I know what it's like to be unmasked. Some of us have been there before, (coughs) and we know that our hypocrisy has been discovered. We don't know when it will occur, but if it exists, Scripture tells us it will be discovered. Now, the slippery thing about our deceitful hearts is that if we're in in the middle of hypocrisy, our hearts would tell us that verses like these won't actually prove true in our case, right? 
our hearts would tell us that we somehow have an infallible way to keep our behavior concealed, that the scripture won't prove true. But we can't listen to our hearts. We listen to the scripture, which tells us that hypocrisy will be discovered. Nothing that's covered up will not be revealed. So that's the first part of hypocrisy discovered. Um, now we come to maybe some practical application of what do we actually do. Um, and this is still part of discovery. I think that we should do some discovery of our own. We should look into our hearts and see what's really there. Um, there could be something lurking there that we're not aware of. And I would give us two ways that we should discover what's in our heart. The first would be um, asking God to show us. So if we look at Psalm 139, Psalm 139, I'll read the first three verses of that psalm, which says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. So if we're going to discover what's really in our hearts, we need to go to the Lord and ask him to show us what's there. Because he's able to do that. He's able to search our hearts and show us what's there. He scrutinizes our path and our lying down. And I think this is good for us. This should be an encouragement to us that if we think there may be some sin lurking in there that we're unaware of, we should go to the Lord and he'll show it to us. Now, how does he actually show it to us? So if he searches our heart, how does he make it? How does he make us aware of it? That's our next scripture, which is Hebrews 4, 12, in which I would submit to you that the way that he actually shows it to us is through his word. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all the things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God can lay open our hearts. He can search our hearts, and his word, the scriptures, can even judge the intentions of our hearts. We know that scripture is like a powerful laser beam that can shine on the darkest part of our heart and reveal what's there, bring it to light. So knowing that hypocrisy will eventually be discovered, perhaps by someone else, perhaps by God, he knows it anyway. Um, if we seek to do some discovery ourselves, then the next step we come to is hypocrisy disclosed which this is another word for confess. I needed a word that started with D. So I have hypocrisy disclosed, which could also be hypocrisy confessed. And for this, we'll go back to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So hypocrisy, like we saw before, is all about concealment. 
We can become very good at hiding things. And this scripture says that if we conceal our transgressions, we will not prosper. And again, I think that some of us know this to be true by experience. We know that unconfessed sin can eat away at our soul like a cancer in and out. So we should be encouraged here that if we see it, we should confess it. And what the scripture says is that if we confess it and forsake it, we don't find judgment. What do we find? Compassion or mercy says that we will find compassion. That should be encouraging for us as we're discovering and disclosing hypocrisy that we will find compassion from the Lord. Um, Oftentimes, not only would hypocrisy need to be confessed and disclosed to God, of course, we're sinning against him, um, first and foremost, but there are also occasions, I think, where our hypocrisy is also sinning against others. Um, What Jesus said, effectively, was that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees influences other people. We should realize that ours does the same and influences other people. so we may very well need to, if we realize it, need to ask for forgiveness from somebody else whom we've sinfully influenced. And I think that um, if we're careful about it, this portion of the notes kind of has a caveat. If we're careful about it, James 5.16 can be useful here. Um, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Um, If we've influence someone sinfully, we should ask them, confess to them, and ask for forgiveness. Now, like I said, I think I have to have a caveat here because James 5.16 is an excellent verse, of course, but it needs to be used wisely because we don't probably need to go to a brother or sister and unload all of our spiritual baggage or garbage on somebody necessarily. If they're not prepared for that, that could be bad for them. Um, but first of all, if we specifically sinned against somebody else by being a hypocrite, we should ask them to forgive us. But the second principle here is I think we need to understand that um, if we're not living in the body here in openness and honesty together, then I think that hypocrisy has fertile ground to flourish among us. Because if all we ever see when we look at each other here in the body is a facade, if all we ever see is an appearance, there's not a whole lot of room for us to really engage in those one another's, right? Now this is somewhat maybe of a caricature, but if we're here in the body and we see a family repeatedly and they appear to be all, um, everything under control, all children all in a line, sitting carefully, all holy and happy, that's all we ever see of them and there's a good chance that we may not never go to them if we have a problem that we need help with. Right? If everyone that we see in the body looks like that they have it all together, then it may be hard for us to go to someone to seek help from them, um, to be admonished or encouraged. Does that make sense? Um, if we're settling for shallow relationships in the body, then I think that it makes it all too easy for hypocrisy to flourish. So openness and honesty together that um, if we really expect to sharpen one another, iron sharpening iron, 
Well, there occasionally needs to be some dullness there, right? If everyone always appears as razor sharp, there's not a whole lot of sharpening that we can do for them. Um, so I think that we should be willing to um, be honest with one another about whatever trials or temptations we're experiencing um, to not have a facade always in front of us. It's not helpful. So hypocrisy disclosed or confessed. And now what we really want to do is we want to defeat hypocrisy. Hypocrisy defeated. Um, I'll go back to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 23. And again, this is a text that Dan used this morning. Matthew 23, uh, verse 26 says, um, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. So this is another account where Jesus is taking the Pharisees to task. It's very similar language as we saw in Luke. But in this case, in verse 26, he's speaking directly to the hypocrite, the Pharisee, and telling him what he should do. So this could help us. What should we do? We should clean out the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Of course, this is symbolism here. The inside of the cup or the dish is what? It's our heart, right? Clean out your heart. In order to defeat hypocrisy, I think the first thing that needs to happen is our heart needs to be cleansed. Um, of course, it could be said that um, to a degree, we um, for someone that's an unbeliever, that's not one of God's children, um, they of course have to have a first occasion where they repent of their sins and they're saved, and only then can they truly live a life that's pleasing to God. But as believers, I trust that probably most of us are in the room, um, we need to continually be going to the Lord, asking Him to cleanse us of our sins. Not because we need atonement over and over again. We don't. It happened once. It's done. Um, but we need our hearts to be cleansed, that our fellowship with him can remain close. So cleansing of the heart is number one. And then 1 Samuel 16, maybe in a place where you might not expect to find a way to defeat hypocrisy. But this is where Samuel is looking for God's anointed <coughs> God already knows who his king is going to be. Samuel just has to find him. And he is here in 1 Samuel 16 looking at all of Jesse's sons, right? And verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So to, to defeat hypocrisy, I think we need to understand that appearances in God's eyes are worth what? They're worth nothing. But if, if we are concerned primarily about our appearance, that is not what's important to God. What's important to him is our heart. God looks at the heart. Um, and that's a real challenge when we live in a world that's consumed with appearances, right? Um, we have to see beyond that, see our hearts as God sees them and know 
but he cares not for appearances. Then the last few verses here on the notes. There may be some very specific things that we can do, and I think where I'm trying to get to, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, is that to defeat hypocrisy, it has all to do with our hearts. Um, The outward display or the show is really a symptom of the problem that lies beneath. We have to get to the heart. 2 Corinthians 5. I'll actually start in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So to defeat hypocrisy here, it's understanding that we're not living for ourselves. We're living for Christ. The gospel would tell us that if we're redeemed, we're not living for ourselves any longer. Hypocrisy would have us do whatever we can to make ourselves look better. This verse reminds us that we're not living for ourselves. We're living for Christ. And the reason for that is that he died and rose again on our behalf. last couple of verses come from Galatians. Galatians 1.10 Paul says, Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul sets up a dichotomy here. But on the one hand, he's either pleasing men or he's a bondservant of Christ. You really can't do both. So what we learn here to defeat hypocrisy is that our lives are meant to please Christ, to please God, and not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. And then Galatians 6, verses 2 and 3. says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This harkens back to Spurgeon's definition. Someone who's nothing thinking that he's something. So to defeat hypocrisy, I would say we must think little of ourselves and think much of God. Hypocrisy wants to boast in ourselves and build ourselves up. And so we should finally see here that it's probably obvious to you that hypocrisy and a proud heart are very closely related. They're inextricably linked, I would say. And so in order to defeat hypocrisy, to put off hypocrisy, what do you think we have to put on in its place? It's another H word, yes, humility, right? To put off hypocrisy, we have to put on Humility. Now, I don't have a verse for this in the notes, um, but um, I think it's critical if we're going to put something off, we better put something on in its place. And, of course, our best example of someone who was never hypocritical a day in his life 
with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the humility in his life, which we know sometimes seems hard to imagine, um, how he could be so humble. Um, but if the problem of hypocrisy is in our heart and it's humility that we need most of all, um, I'll, I will read one more verse from Matthew 11, because this gets to what Christ's heart is like. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to this. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. So to defeat hypocrisy, I think we need a heart like Christ's, which was gentle and humble. Not looking to please ourselves, not looking to live for ourselves, looking to please him as he died and rose again on our behalf. I'll finish with a, not too long of a quote, I hope, um, that has to do with hypocrisy, our hearts, and humility. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, finally, therefore, what we must realize that what God wants and what our blessed Lord wants above all is ourselves, what scripture calls our heart. He wants the inner man, the heart. He wants our submission. He does not want merely our profession, our zeal, our fervor, our works, or anything else. He wants us. God does not want our offerings. He does not want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. He wants us. It's possible for a man to say the right things, to be very busy and active, to achieve apparently wonderful results, and yet not to give himself to the Lord. He may be doing it all for himself, and he may be resisting the Lord in the most vital place of all. And that is finally the greatest insult we can offer to God. What can be a greater insult than to say, Lord, Lord, fervently, to be busy and active, and yet withhold the true allegiance and submission from him. To insist upon retaining control of our own lives and to allow our own opinions and arguments rather than those of scripture to control what we do and how we do it. We must submit to him in his way as he has been pleased to reveal it in the Bible. And if, we, um, and if what we do does not conform to this pattern, it is an assertion of our will is disobedience, and as repellent as the sin of witchcraft, indeed it belongs to the type of conduct that makes Christ say to certain people, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So I think if we're going to defeat hypocrisy, we have to understand what it is. We have to understand that it will be discovered, discover it in our own hearts, confess it, disclose it, and the Lord will be gracious to allow us to defeat it. Pray and we'll close. Lord, we rejoice that um, you are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And Lord, it's um, difficult um, to see um, some of the scriptures because it reveals um, who we are and it reveals our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged by your means of grace you've given us to defeat sin. Lord, your Holy Spirit and your word, as well as our brothers and sisters around us. Lord, help us to um, live lives that are pleasing to you and not pleasing to ourselves only. 
them, but that you would be glorified in them and that we would not seek to put up a facade, that we would be open and honest, uh, Lord, and that you would be glorified in them. In Christ's name we pray.